Pet Behavior Consulting Essentials. The essentials for success for those who work with pet behavior problems. With your hosts, Dr. Suzanne Hetz and Dr. Danny Stepp, Behavior Education Network. Welcome everybody to Pet Behavior Consulting Essentials. I'm Dr. Suzanne Hetz. And I'm Dr. Danny Stepp. And we're both as you all know, we're both certified applied animal behaviorists. And this particular episode of our podcast, we're going to take up the topic of what is meant by science-based dog training. Um, that's a term that is being thrown around in our field quite a bit in the last several years. And it's a confusing term that sometimes people don't even define. So we're going to start out by giving you our definition of what we mean by science-based dog training, and then we're going to talk about some of the issues involved in the, in the use of the term that we've seen. To us, science-based dog training means that the methods used, the techniques used, or how a particular behavior is interpreted are all congruent with what's available in the scientific literature, or meaning that the methods and the interpretations have some foundation or are in agreement with results that have been found from objective research. Is that a fair definition, Dr. Dan? Yep. <laughs> okay. But what the problem that we see is that the, the term science-based dog training has in many um, cases become a synonym for quote, positive reinforcement training or training that shuns the use of any kind of aversive or positive punisher or negative reinforcement or any kind of, quote, force, uh, a term that by itself is so problematic that it deserves a podcast of its own. But we won't get into that definition in this particular episode. But it's reminiscent to us of of using clicker training and operant conditioning as synonyms for one another. Um, the same problems are um, represented by using science-based dog training as a synonym for training that doesn't use any sort of aversives or punishment or quote force. And the problem is, is that um, there's all sorts of claims being made about what's in the scientific literature about different sorts of training methods and training tools. There's some really overreaching statements that are being made that really are not supported by scientific research. And just to give you one example that we ran across in the last few days, and we could give you more than a handful of these, but we want to get into the meat of the episode instead. But here's one that we ran across just recently that was in a letter to the editor of a, a newspaper. And I'm quoting here, the use of prong slash shock collars and force has been scientifically proven to cause harm to the human-animal bond. So I'm going to bring in Dr. Dan here to comment on this. But to start out with, Dr. Dan, technically, science doesn't prove anything, does it? No. What happens is, is that we do studies that either provide evidence to support some particular theory or hypothesis, or that don't support it. And the theories that come to predominate in a scientific area are those for which there is a preponderance of evidence that supports it. Not that every single thing has to support it, but that the majority of things that are out there, the, the research that's been done, supports it. So we're, either, we're talking about either supporting particular viewpoints or not supporting them 
given the scientific evidence that we have available. So would another way to say it is that science really deals more with probabilities? Is that what we're looking at? Yes, of course. All science deals with probabilities. It's difficult to, t to make any sort of uh, flat um, all or none kinds of statements in science because everything is, there are so many different factors that are involved in almost any phenomenon that you're interested in that we, and we don't know what all of those are that we can't make flat 100% predictions. It's always going to be in terms of probabilities. Now, with some well-known facts, let's say, and I'm, and I'm maybe taking an extreme example here, but for example, if we read something that said, science has proven the Earth is round, probably what we would interpret that as is that there is such an overwhelming body of evidence that shows that the Earth is round rather than flat, that the hypothesis that the Earth is flat has pretty much been rejected because there's absolutely no scientific evidence that supports that um, contention. So that the shorthand way then that people talk about that is that science has proven the Earth is round. Yeah, and there again, you need to keep in mind that that is technically wrong. Technically wrong, but I'm just kind of talking about how it gets used in an um, everyday way. Right. So when we talk about what science has proven and not proven, quote unquote, when it comes to the dog training field, there's certainly far from a preponderance of evidence that we have uh, that the earth is round. That kind of body of evidence about certain dog training techniques as compared to others just doesn't exist. The preponderance isn't there in most um, respects. So in reality, the, the truth is, is that the literature that's specific to dog training tools and techniques is really quite sparse. And much of it is, in fact, um, survey data, meaning people have asked questions about dog owners, about things that have happened in the past or, um, or different aspects of the dog's environment and behavior, and then done some correlation analysis on this survey data. Um, so when enough questions are asked in a survey like this, Sometimes you can find correlations just by chance if you don't um, use the correct st statistical analyses that will correct for that. And sometimes that's called data mining. Can you tell folks a little bit about what data mining is? Well, there's so many ways that we can collect data. And with the digital age where we've got um, devices that allow us to collect an enormous amount of data at any one particular point in time, and then to be able to analyze it, um, some people have gone to that sort of, of approach to looking for correlations between all kinds of different factors. Throw all of these different measurements into a computer, run it through a correlation program, and you're bound to come up with something that's, that's significant, some sort of association that's there. But the question is, is it a real association or not? And as Suzanne pointed out, the more of these things you do statistically, uh, the less likely you are to, that it's going to be a real effect. And with data mining, people often don't start out with a testable hypothesis, like most um, scientific research is done, where you start out with a hypothesis, and then you design an experiment to collect data about it, and then um, find out if your data supports that hypothesis or not. But with data mining, as you, as you said, they're just doing 
a bunch of um, correlation statistics and seeing what pops out without really having a, a hypothesis to start with. Right, and there's nothing wrong with that sort of approach to generate hypotheses. Oh, well, I just found a relationship here between the color of a person's eyes and their IQ. Um, I need to investigate that further. But you don't, on the basis of that data mind correlation, say, oh, we now have evidence that people with blue eyes are smarter than people with brown eyes. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And that's the an, another example of what another thing that we wanted to talk about is that much of the research that's been done about dog training methods in these survey papers are, as we've said, correlations, just like the correlations, the hypothetical one that you mentioned between IQ and eye color. A correlation is not the same thing as a cause and effect relationship. And many times these results are being either um, inaccurately reported as cause and effect or they um, in the paper or they get um, shared inappropriately as cause and effect results when they're only correlations such as with the IQ and and eye color the hypothetical that you gave there there could be some underlying genetic um, influence or gene that maybe influences both of those things but that that's different from saying that eye color affects intelligence. Right. So those are some problems with some of the, the science that is available um, about different dog training methods and techniques. And actually, there's, there's few papers or few studies that actually test the different methods head-to-head -head with each other. In other words, where the dogs are trained to a particular task using one technique versus another. There are a few of those, but for those that are out there, their findings have been a little, what I'm gonna call mushy, and also conflicting. Another problem with some of the existing studies is that some of the survey research into the effects of, quote, punishment are really about the effects of aversive or unpleasant things owners do to their dogs, just nasty things like hitting them or um, pinning them to the ground, those sorts of things, and not about the use of punishment in the technical sense of the word. Although not one of those studies that compared training methods head-to-head, -head, one that has gotten quite a bit of exposure in recent years is one by Heron and her associates, and the title of it is Survey of the Use and Outcome of Confrontational and Non-Confrontational Training Methods in Client-Owned Dogs Showing Undesired Behaviors. Now, what's interesting about this particular paper is that you notice in the title, um, the authors talk about confrontational and non-confrontational training methods. And yet, this particular study has been used numerous times as supposed evidence that punishment causes aggression. And you'll notice that the author said nothing about punishment and the association with confrontational and non-confrontational training methods and aggression um, also um, has some, some problems that Dr. Dan's gonna describe to you. Well, Suzanne mentioned this was a survey paper. So what happened was is these were people who came to a veterinary hospital seeking help for behavior problems. Majority of these people had dogs with aggression problems of one sort or another, and they were seeking help for that. And 
before they got the help, they were given this survey instrument that asked them, well, have you tried to work on the problem before? And if so, what had you tried to do? And if you did try particular things, how successful were they in terms of helping or making the, helping the problem or making it worse? So that's the kind of study it was. It required people to recall what they had done before and to categorize them into these either confrontational, direct confrontational, indirect confrontational, neutral or positive reinforcement sorts of approaches. And what they found was is that the people who had used the confrontational, or at least some of the confrontational approaches, reported higher levels of aggression um, in their dogs than people who had used the positive reinforcement methods. Um, there's, there's several different problems with this study, but one of the things to keep in mind here is that um, we don't know what caused what. This is, a, again, a correlational study. We don't have direct cause and effect here. The best you can say about it is, is that the, the research is suggestive that using certain kinds of confrontational methods, things like rolling and pinning a dog, hitting and kicking them, and so forth, is more likely to be associated with aggression on the part of dogs than using other kinds of techniques. To elicit an aggressive response in, in, um, as a, in response to what was done, right? That was the way that it was phrased? That 95% that or a high percentage of the dogs showed an aggressive response in, um, in reaction to the confrontational techniques, right. but a f much smaller percentage, but still about half. 55% who had been, who had used the positive reinforcement techniques reported their dogs were aggressive. Showed an aggressive response, yeah. So it's a, that's what we meant when we said the results of some of these studies are a little bit mushy and um, difficult to interpret. Well, and that's pretty typical of research. It's, you know, it's very rare that you find a nice clean result that says, oh, this is always better than that. And if you're going into that, into reading the research or trying to interpret it with those kinds of views in mind, you're going to be sadly disappointed most of the time. Really good point. Yeah. So one of the things you might ask, since we've gone through some of the problems here about the use of the term science-based dog training, is why should we care? Why should we make a, a, an issue of this if um, our goal, like all of yours, is to train dogs in ways that they enjoy and doesn't cause harm to them um, and not make fear and intimidation the focus of, of our training? Then, then why should we say anything? Well, we have some really concrete answers for that question. Because first off, making false claims and, and misinterpreting what science has to say about dog training sucks the credibility away from the progress the field has made in the past 10 years or so about using methods that really are better grounded in science. It's, it's the false claims and the, and the exaggerations and overreaching statements that got us wolf pack theory and the need to dominate your dog through scruff shakes and alpha rolls and, and who knows what. So overgeneralizing takes away the credibility, credibility that we're all striving to achieve um, to help the field of dog training advance. And when people from other branches of science take a look at the way dog trainers and behavior consultants are using 
the animal behavior literature and see that they're misapplying it, misinterpreting it, and so forth, then it really degrades the quality of the whole field from the reputation of the whole field um, for, for everybody. Exactly, because if, if people who are familiar with the scientific literature look at these overreaching claims and say, well, I know that's not true. These people don't know what they're talking about. That's what undermines the credibility of the uh, attempts to be um, more focused on positive reinforcement training and get away from some of these harmful things um, that are done to dogs in the name of training them. If we lose the credibility, then, then we're, we're going backwards rather than forwards. And secondly, as, as behavior scientists, we appreciate the power of scientific knowledge and, and what it can do to advance a field. And maybe this just is another way of saying the same thing, but when it's misinterpreted and, and misused in ways that we've seen it misused, it's, it's really disturbing because it, it undermines the power that scientific research has and the contribution it can make to a field. And finally, um, to finish up here, as in other fields, such as human medicine and the behavioral science fields in, um, for people, intervention methods and choices for how we intervene in a situation, and you can think of training as an intervention, are going to be guided by not just um, scientific research. Science provides or should be providing the basis for what we do, but when we make training or interventions decisions, there, first off, isn't always a science, scientific results that will help us make the decision. And secondly, there are factors involved that may um, go beyond the effect of a particular training method on a dog, especially if training methods are equivocal, then there are some other factors that are going to be um, need to be considered as to what method is the best in a particular situation. Right. So we have practical concerns, considerations, and this happens in, in every sort of field where we're trying to apply the knowledge that we have. Sometimes you just can't do one sort of, of procedure or another, or we have to modify it greatly in order to make it work for the particular situation we're in. We can't always do things um, in the way that we would perhaps like to always do them. So sometimes interventions are compromises between um, what we'd like to see done, what the owner can reasonably do, and really what is also in some situations um, best for the, the dog and the community at, at large. Um, so in any field, intervention decisions are also in part ethical ones. And one of the, um, what is it, policies, I guess, that are, that's been advocated um, a lot recently is the least intrusive method available. That's the subject for another podcast. But just to make the point that training decisions are going to be guided by more than science when it comes right down to it. But to end up, um, a message from our sponsor, if you really want to learn more about science and dog training, what that means, what the available science is, how you interpret some of the um, scientific papers that, that you read about or hear the results about in popular media, then we would highly recommend that you 
um, sign up for the professional system for decoding and applying canine behavior science from AppliedAnimalBehaviorAcademy.com. That's a, what do we have in there? 30 to 40 hours of training in canine science um, that really helps you have a better understanding of the science that is available about dog behavior and how you can best make use of it in what you do. And of course, our whole focus here in Behavior Education Network is to provide our members with ongoing scientific education as it applies to dog training um, in, in the widest possible scope that will make um, people better at what they do and better educated in the sciences. So any concluding thoughts, Dr. Dan? Just that we all need to be um, skeptical consumers of the information that we receive out there. And just because it's labeled as scientific information or that the person claims that there's science to support this, don't always take it at face value. Do a little scratching around yourself and take a look at it uh, because it may not be exactly what is being claimed. And one of the red flags would be this phrase, science has proven. Um, this as a reminder of our example. And if you feel you don't have the time or the um, expertise to scratch around on your own, as Dan said, then join Behavior Education Network because I'll tell you, we do the scratching for you and you can find um, a lot of, of those underlying studies that we've already analyzed um, for our members in Ben. So we appreciate you listening to this episode of Pet Behavior Consulting Essentials, and we look forward to having you with us again on our next episode. This is Dr. Suzanne Hetz. And Dr. Danny Stepp. Thanks again, you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.